0: Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Thomas Sewell said, Ours may become the first civilization destroyed not by the power of enemies, but by the ignorance of our teachers and the dangerous nonsense they are teaching our children. In an age of artificial intelligence, they are creating artificial stupidity. Hello, and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. Why is math an essential part of teaching absolute truth? How does learning math also teach us to defend the truth of absolute truth? And how does math confirm natural law. Joining us today to discuss math and truth is Wittenberg Academy quadrivium teacher, Mrs. Rebecca McCreary. Rebecca, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me. This will be uh, an interesting conversation. (laughs) Of course.
0: Most of our conversations are interesting. (laughs) In recent weeks, news outlets have been covering a story regarding the Oregon Department of Education, and a newsletter they sent to math educators in that state. The bottom line coming out of this is, we need to change mathematics instruction because it is perpetuating white supremacy. Now, we're not going to take on the topic of quote unquote, woke math today. But the chatter regarding math instruction gives us a wonderful opportunity to have our own conversation regarding math. I always prefer talking about what we are for rather than what we are against anyway. We know there is absolute truth. We stand on the scriptures in this. But as we will discuss later, math also confesses this. In fact, mathematicians throughout the ages have studied and explored numbers and arrived at this same conclusion. Studying the context in which the study of mathematics developed is an established part of Wittenberg Academy's quadrivium curriculum. When thinking about math confessing absolute truth, why does the context or history of math matter.
1: The history of math is very important and as we look at it we can actually see the great diversity and egalitarian nature of mathematics and that's definitely something that is a benefit to our Wittenberg students. We can see as we're looking at math that when a good idea was developed It was adopted and it might have taken a few hundred years for it to become adopted, but ultimately the simplicity and the beauty of the idea trumps where it came from or the culture that it was created in. And a great example of this is just our numeral system itself. It was actually developed in India. And was used in India for hundreds of years as the Hindu scholars were working with numbers of vastly different magnitudes than what was being worked with in Europe or Egypt or anything like that at the time where Western civilization was still... Mostly, considering just counting things, Hindu scholars were working on counting stars and these hypothetical ideas that needed huge, huge numbers and Then, over time, as uh, there was more trade, these numbers eventually reached the Middle East and the Persian nations, and the Arabics got a hold of them and actually developed what we know of as algebra and and the word itself, algebra and algorithms are versions of Arabic words that mean to move and to balance, respectively, because that's what we're doing in algebra. We're moving numbers around to keep our equations balanced. And then from the Arabic world, these numbers found their way to Egypt where Fibonacci was apprenticing as a merchant, he encountered these numbers in 1202 AD, and then eventually wrote his book Liber Abaci. Brought it into Western civilization in mainland Europe, and then again, it took a few hundred years for it to catch on. But eventually, the simplicity, the ease, the flexibility of these Arabic numerals completely displaced all of the other notations that were being used at the time. So. Being able to know the history really gives us this wide world view of the math that's being used. We also get the benefit of noticing when ideas are discovered independently, regardless of location. We have all sorts of civilizations throughout history coming up with basically the same astronomy, the same calendars, and then even a more recent example, the same calculus between Newton and Leibniz without talking to each other. So we can see that because we have these ideas recurring in these different locations, the concepts that are being described are not dependent on the culture or the situation that is producing them it's really a look at a bigger picture that is universal to all of humanity
0: you know that's a really fascinating look at and and in my in my mind as you were i, I tend to see things in maps mm-hmm. <laughs> and so sure. as you were talking you know i'm picturing these events occurring all over the world in various places, obviously, but also right. various times. Mm-hmm. And and I, I love the way that you painted that picture of the universality of these ideas. And it's hard not to conclude, given that, that these ideas, even though they are, for lack of a better term, term codified by man that mm-hmm. these ideas really transcend man and are just a natural part of the world that God created and and as man explores God's creation he sees these these patterns and mm-hmm. he works on ways to Explain these patterns and explore these patterns, and take things that are abstract and and try to make them less abstract. I don't I don't know if we, if we can always get to the point of concrete, but you right. know, <laughs> getting getting to the point of of less abstract so that we can right, visualize. Right. You know, yeah. you think about the power of algorithms in being able to create things and visualize things mm-hmm. you know this this becomes obviously a larger topic than what we're <laughs> discussing today but right. but just thinking about the history of these things really gives us a larger grasp on our present reality when when people come up with these ideas like math is perpetuating white supremacy and Mm -hmm. math is perpetuating racism you can look at this even very brief overview that you've given us of the history of math of of developing some of these concepts and go okay well um it took a really long time to get to white people, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: well, and I think calendars are a really great example of exactly that. The Chinese developed calendars um, at their point in civilization, and then we have the Babylonian calendar, which is the basis of the Western calendar, and then we have the Mayan calendar, even over in you know the new world, and all of these calendars, yeah, they are trying to explore. This idea of time, which is a very abstract idea, but definitely absolutely something very directly God created. Humans are trying to use these ideas and these notations to try and explain it and make it more accessible. Not to tout my own subject too much, but, you know, I'm going to. Um, As you should. (laughs) It's, it's It's almost like if we get away from the numbers and we start looking at the patterns, we're looking at the actual patterns themselves that God put into the universe and trying to translate them in a way that our brains can understand So it's almost, if you'll go with me on the illusion, because I know it's going to ruffle some feathers, but it's almost like the patterns in mathematics are the ultimate primary source because we're looking at the patterns that God himself put into being. So it's, it's almost as close as we can get to seeing the work directly. Not that every human isn't a direct work of God, but when we're looking at the nature and those patterns, we're seeing almost the way that God is thinking because we see the order and the logic and the reason that, that a lot of people also see in math, because we're trying to describe the order and the logic and the reason of our creator who set all of these processes in motion. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And we know, I mean, scripture talks about the fact that uh, God has set eternity in the hearts of man, but mm-hmm. but they can't Get it? I mean, that's the Mrs. Right. Benson <laughs> translation, right there. Yeah, I right. completely butchered that, but um, you know that, that, that our our finite minds are unable to ponder in infinity,
1: the infinite. You know, right. I mean, yeah. we Absolutely. we really we really try. We really try. We really, really do. And as much as little kids like to try and find the highest number, you know, there's there's a math saying, I don't know, that the largest number you can think of is still closer to zero than it is to infinity. That's incredible. And just trying to get our brain around what infinity actually is, is just something we can't do. Right. Right. I love the fact, and and our listeners
0: obviously haven't had the opportunity to take all of your classes or have had my vantage point where I've had the opportunity for years to observe your live chats and and things like that. But, Mm -hmm. But I love the way that there's just this sense of awe that you bring to these things and help the scholars ponder and I think that that is an essential thing that when we when we take the the quadrivium, when we take the the study of these abstract things out of an essential place in the the education of the free man, right? Which is you know the mm-hmm. liberal liberal arts, you know it, the liberal studies, a, a liberal education that. We are not giving our scholars the full opportunity to ponder the world that God has given us and the world in which we live and move and have our being and serve our neighbor. And, and, and so I think that, that having that opportunity is absolutely priceless and being able to give them within that, and I say this all the time, you know, at Wittenberg Academy, we're not teaching our scholars how to work numbers, but how numbers work. And mm-hmm. and I think that, that that context of understanding number within time and within history and geography, even as you've kind of painted that picture for us, that that is is part of that understanding how numbers work. The development of these ideas and these processes, they have a history Mm -hmm. unto themselves. Math isn't just doing problems, but appreciating the questions that have gone into solving these problems. Yeah, absolutely. Recently, a journalist, Bari Weiss, published an interview with Princeton mathematics professor, Sergio Kleinerman. In that interview, Kleinerman said, the idea that focusing on getting the quote unquote right answer is now considered among some self-described progressives, a form of bias or racism is offensive and extraordinarily dangerous. The entire study of mathematics is based on clearly formulated definitions and statements of fact. If this were not so, bridges would collapse, planes would fall from the sky, and bank transactions would be impossible. The ability of mathematics to provide right answers to well-formulated problems is not something specific to one culture or another it is really the essence of mathematics and you just gave us some fantastic examples of of this in terms of of looking at the context in which math sits but going to the other side of that so so we have the context going to the other side of what Dr. Kleinerman was talking about, why is it important that we are able to arrive at a right answer when doing math? I think
1: the importance of having a right answer and the idea that there could even be a right answer is something that is very unique to mathematics if we look at it in comparison to other areas of study. And it kind of goes back to what mathematics is and what its purpose is. And the purpose is to recognize these patterns from the natural world. Like earlier, we were talking about the calendars and how you know, regardless of what format or notation any of these civilizations chose to write their calendar in, they still came back to the ultimate idea, this, this ultimate fact, this ultimate right answer that there are 365 days. Even if we're grouping them in, in different size chunks, we still have the same number of days because that is the pattern of the natural world. And another aspect of math is being able to communicate this idea accurately and with precision. I don't know what it's like at your house, but anytime we're, we're doing a lot of home renovations off and on over the years at our house, and anytime we have any kind of discussion about color, it always becomes a huge fight of, well, what kind of blue do we want? <laughs> right. Do we want a royal blue or a, a sky blue or a, this kind of a blue or whatever? But, you know, If we look at math, we can very easily say, not that we do, but we could say that we want the blue that has a wavelength of 450 nanometers. Again, that's not what happens in our house. I was really Um, hoping it was. (laughs) It it, it isn't. It isn't. (laughs) We don't have have the technology to measure those paint chips, the the wavelength coming off of them, but that's going to give you a much more precise view of your blue instead of having this language idea of, well, I like this blue and you like that blue and we can't figure out which blue is which blue. And And that definitely has a point. But if we get rid of the idea of a right answer in math, it takes away the mathness of it and it, it turns into a poetry of numbers, which which wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing, but gravity, does not follow poetry. And so if we're not always looking at gravity, with the same kind of accuracy and precision, that we would possibly look at the color blue, we would have bridges that are falling down and roads that are falling down and all of these issues. There was a book that I read by a mathematician, Matt Parker, and he talked about how they did just one small change in this bridge where instead of it being a, I think there was a, a manufacturing issue, they couldn't get a beam as long as they wanted. So they split it up into two beams and it still covered the same distance, but because splitting the beam changed the rigidity of it, the bridge even, eventually fell down because they hadn't redone the math. They changed the parameters and those parameters are not open to numerical poetry which could be very interesting. But especially when you're looking at things that actually need to serve a functional purpose, or if we're looking at ancient math, that's going back to this real world, that's going back to the the actual situations that we're living in, it's hugely important that we get a right answer. And part of it, as Kleinerman stated, is that mathematics is so based on definitions and statements of fact, so much so that if we change our definitions, we're talking about something completely different. Just throwing out the example of a square, Euclid roughly defines a square as a quadrilateral with equal sides that all meet at right angles. Now, this is a convention that, that has been agreed to, and there's nothing specific about the word square, but if we start to change any of those parameters, it's not a square anymore. It becomes a rhombus or a rectangle or something else. It's no longer the thing that we said that it was. We're talking about something else. Definitions are hugely important in math because we are trying to so accurately determine what it is we're talking about and one of the most accurate ways to do that is to attach numbers to them so that's where we get this idea of right answers because we have to go back and forth between our difficult weird squishy brains and again this these systems that God has put in place in our world and try to mediate between the two and that is a really hard thing to do but it's also something that doesn't rely on us we have to find this go between that works in all these situations. And again, having something as theoretically simple as a number to help us do that makes it easier for us to have these conversations between cultures and between people of different backgrounds. Just recently, a big conversation topic in all of my live chats has been the temperature, because it's spring and it's it's always a weird temperature, but we can all, all of the students, no matter where we're from, even if it is a, a relatively small radius of just the United States, we all have an idea of what something means to be 40 degrees or 15 degrees or something like that. And we're looking at the world outside of ourselves and finding a way to communicate that information. And the numbers are really helpful there, even though the numbers are not that information themselves.
0: I really like how you highlighted there this idea of definitions, of statements of fact, that this is what it is. And if we, if we start changing the definition, then it's no longer that thing. And mm-hmm. we see this in all of life, right? I mean, this is, this yeah. is a big deal in logic, which is, of course, very mathematical in terms of, of, of putting words on some of these, these same ideas. And, also you think more broadly if you think in a wider scope that you have in our day and certainly in other days but we're living in our day so <laughs> we mm-hmm. can reference our day that right. the, the definition of things is very popularly up for debate you know things mm-hmm. like a man and a woman you know the right. it, once you start changing the definition of a man you're no longer talking about a man it, right, you know, right. i mean this is this is something that math teaches us this is something that mm-hmm. logic Absolutely. teaches us and and i find it really interesting just a- as you were talking my mind went back to genesis in that the first task that God gave Adam was to name things, to, to a certain extent, to define things. So here's this right. thing that has these characteristics. And mm-hmm. it uh, so, so, so what is it, <laughs> you know, call it, yeah. call it a thing, you know, uh, and, right, and name right. it. And and this has been man's task in having dominion over the earth as God gave to man that, that dominion of, of defining things. And so coming up with definitions, defining things, calling things as they are, that is inherent to man because God told him to.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And definitions are something we we talk about all the time in Quadrivium three, because it's where we discuss Euclid and Euclid's elements and every new book, every new topic, at least 10 of them, uh, out of the 13 books of Euclid, there are additional definitions, because it's so important to know what it is you're talking about beforehand. And that Really is the definitions and and Euclid's Elements itself really is this foundation of what we consider mathematics, and we keep coming back to it as a society as these are the standards. And again, you know, using a square as an example, if we change that definition, then everything falls apart, um, and we no longer really know what math is. Uh, And Euclid even has books, not just on shapes, but also on numbers. And he has definitions on how his numbers relate to each other. So all of these definitions relate to each other and they feed into each other. And we've had quite a few uh, in the various classes, had quite a few discussions on what makes a good definition. And it turns out it's a really hard thing to come up with because you're trying to find the essential characteristics of the thing you're trying to define that doesn't include anything else, but also includes all the possibilities uh, within the group. One example that we use is the definition of a rock from from one of my daughter's books is listed as an inorganic solid material. (laughs) So then we discuss whether or not that's a good definition. And... Thankfully, pretty much every class has agreed that no that's not a good definition because then then we get all sorts of things that are included within that that are not rocks. They could be found in rocks like metal ore or um, salt or things like that, but there there's something else that makes something a rock that's not just that it's inorganic and it's solid so there's there's some sort of I guess, right answer even to what a rock is, even if you just look at it mathematically, not even taking into account any numbers. Just this idea of putting a definition on things automatically almost gives it a right or wrong answer. And that's a very
0: uncomfortable thing these days. You Mm -hmm. know, that, that, I mean, we, we want to have this very relativistic well and and to some extent we're even beyond relative right you know you, yeah. <laughs> you know it used to be you know you could have your truth and i could have my truth and you mm-hmm, know and mm-hmm. we're we're all good but no now you need to have my truth right you know you can't right. have your truth you need to you need to have my truth whatever whatever my truth happens to be on on any given mm-hmm. day and i and and that that creates confusion and it creates instability and you know if if we're doing this to math you know if we're making math an unstable thing
1: (laughs) (laughs) where do we even go from there (laughs) you know yeah yeah it's it's definitely one of those things that that it, it literally does just fall apart and there there are quite a few things you know again in the ancient math Ancient math being geometry, ancient civilizations, but even all the way up through through calculus in the in the 17th century, where we're trying to describe natural phenomena, and so we're looking at something external. It's easy we think to to come up with these uh, universal laws, but there are even. In that ancient math, there are ideas that were developed for the sake of ease, I guess we'll say. The idea that one is not a prime number. The idea that if you take a negative and multiply it by another negative, you get a positive. There's nothing inherent to nature that makes those properties true. But we've all agreed, everyone in, the, in the, the mathematical field, the mathematical universe, has agreed that these things are true. So if we start changing the definitions of one to, to account that, oh, okay, it can be a prime number, then basically every other theorem on prime numbers is now false because we've just changed the definition of one. So if we're taking definitions away, we're changing definitions, we, don't, we really just don't have math anymore because everything builds on those definitions, even, even some of the definitions that are a little bit more arbitrary and are a little bit more removed from nature and patterns.
0: We'll continue our conversation with Mrs. McCrory on our next episode. We're beginning two new segments for each Wittenberg Hour episode. The first is books worth reading. In this segment, we will highlight a book for your consideration. The second new segment is words worth repeating. This might be a quote or a word that is worth consideration. Our book worth reading, for this episode is Mathematics for the Non-Mathematician by Morris Klein. This unfortunately titled book was previously published under the title Mathematics for the Liberal Arts. Now, this book might not be one that you would just pick up and read, but you should. We utilize this text through the duration of our quadrivium studies at Wittenberg Academy. Over the span of these courses, scholars read the whole book. If your children are Wittenberg Academy scholars, pick up the book when they are not studying. You will see math in a whole new light. Many of us were taught how to work numbers and never how numbers work. Klein's book can be your ticket to a whole new world of appreciating numbers. For those without Wittenberg Academy scholars, pick up this book anyway. It is easy to read, and if you are up for the challenge, provides problems for you to work through. The answers are even in the back. Klein says, practical, scientific, philosophical, and artistic problems have caused men to investigate mathematics. But there is one other motive, which is as strong as any of these, the search for beauty. Mathematics is an art, and as such, affords the pleasures which all the arts afford. So go check out Mathematics for the Non-Mathematician by Morris Klein to either recover from the mathematics instruction you received or to grow in your appreciation of numbers. repeating today is algorithm. Our intention in focusing on this word today is to highlight its origin and how this word has moved around literally geographically over time. Algorithm, according to Webster's 1828 Dictionary, says it is an Arabic term signifying numerical computation or the six operations of arithmetic. The New Oxford American Dictionary, which is a more recent dictionary, gives as its definition a process or set of rules to be followed in calculations or other problem solving operations, especially by a computer. The New Oxford American Dictionary gives us a little bit more background in terms of its origin. It tells us that it comes from the late 17th century, denoting the Arabic or decimal notation of numbers, a variant influenced by the Greek arithmos, or number, of Middle English algorithm via the Old French from medieval Latin algorithmus. The Arabic source, al khwarizmi the man of Quarism, now Kiva, was a name given to the 9th century mathematician Abu Jafar Muhammad ibn Musa, author of widely translated works on algebra and arithmetic. Morris Klein tells us even more about this word in his book, Mathematics for the Non-Mathematician. He says on page 19, The Arabs, who suddenly appeared on the scene of history in the role of destroyers, had been a nomadic people. They were unified under the leadership of the prophet Muhammad and began an attempt to convert the world to Muhammadism using the sword as their most decisive argument. They conquered all the land around the Mediterranean Sea. In the Near East, they took over Persia and penetrated as far as India. In Southern Europe, They occupied Spain, southern France, where they were stopped by Charles Martel, southern Italy, and Sicily. Only the Byzantine or Eastern Roman Empire was not subdued and remained an isolated center of Greek and Roman learning. In rather surprisingly quick time, as the history of nations goes, the Arabs settled down and built a civilization and culture which maintained a high level from about 800 to 1200 A.D., Their chief centers were Baghdad in what is now Iraq and Cordova in Spain. Realizing that the Greeks had created wonderful works in many fields, the Arabs proceeded to gather up and study what they could still find in the lands they controlled. They translated the works of Aristotle, Euclid, Apollonius, Archimedes, and Ptolemy into Arabic. In fact, Ptolemy's chief work, whose title in Greek meant mathematical collection, was called the Almagest, the greatest work, by the Arabs, and is still known by this name. Incidentally, other Arabic words, which are now common mathematical terms in algebra, taken from the title of a book written by Al-Khwarizmi in 9th century Arabian mathematician, and algorithm, now meaning a process of calculation, which is a corruption of the man's name. Though they showed keen interest in mathematics, optics, astronomy, and medicine, the Arabs contributed little that was original. It was also peculiar that, although they had at least some of the Greek works and could therefore see what mathematics meant, their own contributions, largely in arithmetic and algebra, followed the empirical, concrete approach of the Egyptians and Babylonians. They could, on the one hand, appreciate and critically review the precise, exact, and abstract mathematics of the Greeks, while, on the other, offer methods of solving equations, which, though they worked, had no reasoning to support them. During all the centuries in which Greek works were in their possession, the Arabs manfully resisted the lures of exact reasoning in their own contributions." We are indebted to the Arabs, not only for their resuscitation of the Greek works, but for picking up some simple but useful ideas from India, their neighbor on the east. The Indians, too, had built up some elementary mathematics comparable in extent and spirit with the Egyptian and Babylonian developments. However, after about 200 AD, mathematical activity in India became more appreciable probably as a result of contacts with the Alexandrian Greek civilization. The Hindus made a few contributions of their own, such as the use of special number symbols from 1 to 9, the introduction of 0, and the use of positional notation with base 10, that is, our modern method of writing numbers. They also created negative numbers. These ideas were taken over by the Arabs and incorporated in their mathematical works. Because of internal dissension, the Arab empire split into two independent parts. The Crusades launched by the Europeans and the inroads made by the Turks further weakened the Arabs and their empire and culture disintegrated. So there we have it. Algorithm. Now you know the whole story. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.